Hi, it's Jamie. And I'm Portia. And we are Just Two Pearls. Join us for Adventures in Pearls. Black Panther has been the protector of Wakanda for generations. Now it is time to show the outside world who we are. Now that I have your attention. Hey, Pearls, we are so excited because it is Black Panther Day on Just Two Pearls. And before we even get into the episode, we don't want to be petty with y'all, but really, it has been three weeks. You should have seen the film by now. So we're very sorry if you haven't seen the film. We just want to let you know this episode, if you have not seen the movie, is going to be full of spoilers. And so if you still want to see the movie spoiler-free, please pause the episode, go see the movie, and then come right on back, and we will be excited to share our thoughts and opinions with you. But before we get into it, um, I just wanted to share a few quotes from Octavia Butler. And Octavia Butler um, was a black American woman who was really well known for her writing in the area of science fiction. She was a hero to black nerds everywhere, um, especially black girl nerds, um, just because of her love for science fiction, um, but also because of the way that she deployed scripture in her science fiction writing. And so I just want to share a couple of quotes from her work, and then we will get into the episode. First, she said, freedom is dangerous, but it's precious too. You can't just throw it away or let it slip away. You can't sell it for bread and pottage. She also said, tolerance, like any aspect of peace, is forever a work in progress, never completed. And if it were as intelligent as we like to think we are, never abandoned. Yes, this ends the reading, Jamie. Come on, Octavia Butler, who I absolutely love. She is the original black girl nerd, hashtag blurred. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jamie, I've got an adventure story since we are journeying to the land of Wakanda. So, in any case, um, so I kind of shared this story a little bit on portionality. Uh, That's my um, podcast. But I want to tell you some more on Just Two Pearls. Hey. So, Jamie, I told you this story because I told you about it when it was happening. So, girl, I put out a tweet into the Twitterverse asking, um, you know, Michael B. Jordan said, you know, like, hey, can we get a free screener down at the church because, you know, we want to do a community screening, like, just for free. You know, because I'm all about, you know, community. I'm all about the people. I'm always thinking about those who may not have the means to go. Um, People were doing campaigns and fundraisers for this film. And I'm just kind of like, you know what, let me just try my luck here um, and just see what will happen. You know, and I was just like, you just never know. And... I was just like, you know, I'm just going to send it. I'm just going to do it. And I did it. And so a couple weeks later, actually a very couple of weeks later, because I sent this out, like, before the film, like, way before the film came out. And I got an email that was real, real, like, discreet. And I did not understand anything that was happening because it wasn't, like, explicitly saying, hey, did you tweet Michael B. Jordan about the movie? Like, it wasn't anything like that. It was just an email trying to confirm my identity. 
And I was just like, yeah, I'm, you know, personality. And, yeah, I'm at Bethany Baptist Church, but if this has to do with Bethany, um, you know, hit me up at my Bethany email, you know, cool. Um, But she was just like, yeah, so when's a good time to call you? (laughs) And I'm thinking maybe it's a parent. I'm thinking maybe it's, you know, somebody from the church because I'm still getting to know people, right? And so this could be anybody, Jamie. This could be anybody, you know, because I really do have parents who are following me on social media. And sometimes I'm just kind of like, why? But I I get their point. Um, So there are some parents who um, are actively following me on social media. And so uh, lesson learned, y'all, be careful what you put on social media because you never know who's watching. But anyway, um, (laughs) but I never post anything that I'm not confident with or anything that I feel like is jeopardizing. So that's just kind of me. So, but any case, uh, so the girl, uh, the lady calls me, and uh, she's just like, yeah, so you've been in contact with Michael. Now, mind you, I have a best friend named Michael. And so, of course, I'm in contact with Michael. I'm always talking to Michael. Like, Michael and I are always talking. We talk, like, every other day. But, no, that's not what she meant. She was talking about Michael B. Jordan. And so I literally said, wait, what? And I had to sit down, and uh, she let me know that he saw my tweet and uh, directly said, hey, you know, find out who she is, find out her people, how many people she's got, and, you know, let's make this happen. And I was just like, oh, my God. It's like, oh, my God, this is, this is not happening. But it was happening. And so I was extremely excited. Um, I pulled together uh, 30 people, 24 of my teenagers at Bethany, and six chaperones. I was not one of them, actually. Yes, Portia was actually going to Memphis at the Sammy Dewitt Proctor Conference. And so I pulled 24 youth and uh, six adults to go see a private screening um, hosted by Michael B. Jordan, and he was there for Black Panther. And and they were asked to, you know, kind of turn it out with their royal attire and just kind of come, you know, like real fly, and they're African and whatnot. And so this was before the film hit theaters. It was exclusive. It was um, in a very private location, and it was so awesome. And they had a Ball. I mean, they had such a great time. I heard such great news uh, when I came back. And even that day um, while I was in Memphis, I heard so many great stories, and I was so happy. My heart was, my heart was so full knowing that my youth had the opportunity to see this film hosted by a celebrity who's in the film. And so because um, Michael B. Jordan is from Newark, and so it meant a lot to me that there are celebrities and that there are people who actually do take the time to reach back into their community um, and see the young people that are here. And so I was very, 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 very happy. And, um, yeah, and so we praise God for these things. So, so this is a, an adventure that I kind of want to share, you know, and I did get to Wakanda. It wasn't with the youth and it wasn't with the church but at that time. But, girl, I sure enough was there opening day. I had on my fly African outfit. I was, girl, I was cute. My afro was out, my actual afro, not my wig afro, but my actual afro, you know. But, you know, I was letting that hair out. Yes, and I was fly. So, you know, because I was trying to be down with the Dora Milaje, you know what I'm saying? So I was trying to be like warrior princess like that day, Jamie. It was great, and it was grand. It was so grand. So I have been to Wakanda, and I am going back to Wakanda several times. Praise Jesus. That's awesome. (laughs) 
And that's really cool that um, Michael B. Jordan came through that way, and especially being from Newark, that he's supporting the community that he's from in that way. And it's awesome the way that not only he, but so many other black actors really have made so many black young people and even black uh, older folks like us and older than us really feel represented. And I think, uh, you know, we owe them appreciation for that. We owe the writers of the film um, appreciation for that. Ryan Coogler for his awesome um, co-writing and directing. So shout out to you, Portia, for getting some tickets for your young people and to everyone who participated in making this film and bringing it to us. But, y'all, we are so excited. We are, (laughs) y'all, we're going to talk all things Wakanda. Like I said at the top of the episode, again, this is your time to pause if you have not seen this this, uh, movie because we're about to go in. Um, So first we're just going to kind of orient y'all with, like, in terms of who's in the cast, like who's in the movie, um, and just general impressions of characters that we had. And then we're going to go through, like, four, five, maybe six portions, um, like, scenes that really stood out to us in the movie and kind of the implications that we drew from those scenes. Um, And what I want to say before we go too deep is, um, of course, Black Panther is part of a genre um, of writing and film called Afrofuturism. And Afrofuturism is just basically the imagining of a future that's filled with art, science, and technology that's steeped in African traditions and black identity. Um, But before we even started recording, Portia and I were saying, like, what's really interesting about this movie is, yes, it is Afrofuturism, right? Like some of the things like the Black Panther suit and um, drinking a heart-shaped herb to gain the power of the Black Panther. We know those things are not true to African life or to anyone's life. But African people and people of African descent, people in the African diaspora, like, we're pretty lit. And so some of what we were seeing in the film in terms of Shuri, the black girl nerd, and in terms of warrior women, and in terms of um, women being treated equally with men, um, in terms of, you know, just black people just getting stuff done, uh, that's not Afrofuturism. That's the Afro-present. And uh, so we just want to kind of also just honor and celebrate that, that what this film demonstrated was a heightened version of who we already are. Uh, so uh, just continue just to live into your power and your greatness um, because this is who we already are. Um, but let's get into it. Okay, so of course the title character of the film, Fortune and I will get into later whether or not we think he's the star of the film. <laughs> Well, the title character in the film, The Black Panther, T'Challa, is played by Chadwick Boseman, who I think is having a pretty good year because he's the Black Panther. He was Thurgood in the Thurgood Marshall movie. So, like, he's having, a, like, a, a, a moment, um, which is good. Chadwick is an HBCU alum, um, great actor, seems like a good guy, so that's great. Um, what were your impressions of T'Challa in the movie, Portia? So, you know, Chadwick Boseman... T'Challa, I think this is a fantastic character for him because it allows him, um, T'Challa is very gentle. I think T'Challa is very sensitive. And I think T'Challa is someone who wants to do the right thing by his people. He's someone who has integrity. He's someone who shows leadership and someone who has passion. Um, and he is, he's someone who loves, you know, he has a heart for a woman, you know, and that he loves sincerely. And I think he represents 
so many people and so many men in particular who just want to do right by their people, who want to honor the legacy that is before them, but also still wants to move forward, even with some caution. Um, and I think T'Challa is very teachable. And so when T'Challa kind of takes on the, I, I want to call it the spirit of the Black Panther, but he it literally takes on the, the drink of the Black Panther to become the Black Panther, there is this honoring and this this desire to just do the right thing that I think T'Challa takes seriously. And so it's not a play-play thing for him. That This is something that he is taking on with respect, something that he's taking on with consideration, and he's, he has a duty to serve his country. And so um, I noticed that in, in a lot of his, his uh his character, but then he also has some stuff where he freezes, right? <laughs> so the freezing, like when he sees uh, Nakia, who we'll talk about uh, in a moment, he freezes, like when he sees her, because he's just so stuck, struck by her, and he's like, ah, oh, Nakia. Um, and so I think he's he's got some layers to him. He seems kind of one-dimensional in some aspects, like if you're just in comparison to all the other characters who are just so dynamic and so rich. But I think T'Challa, you know, is very – um, he has some layers to him. He has some depth. And I also think that speaks to Chadwick Boseman's um, professionalism as an actor to kind of bring out those multiple layers of T'Challa because he's played so many roles, because he's been Thurgood Marshall, because he's been Jackie Robinson, because he's been James Brown, <laughs> you know, because he's played so many roles. I think he's got a skill set to where he can bring out the different levels of T'Challa without T'Challa overshadowing all the other characters, if that makes sense. Right, for sure, for sure. Uh, so I'm just, y'all, I don't know if y'all will care about the way that I'm naming these characters, but I am just reading off of the call sheet I'm finding on IMDb. So um, excuse me if this is not the order in which y'all want me to read these characters. Okay. <laughs> uh, Eric, uh, whose nickname is Killmonger, so the call sheet lists him as Eric Killmonger. If you listen to the Portionality podcast, she kind of critiques calling him Killmonger, but, you know. That's the name the character has given himself. But, yes, his name is Eric. So Eric is a black American man um, from Oakland in his early 30s, and we later learn that he is at least half Wakandan. His father was Wakandan, and we'll get a little bit later into who exactly his father is. Uh, but he's a pretty, he becomes a pretty essential character in the film, and he also is someone who has the power or the spirit or the drink of the Black Panther as well. And, um, yeah, I think he's considered to be, you know, one of the, I don't know, I just found him to be a really relatable character, Portia. He represents all of the black young people who feel left behind, you know, born in the late 80s and the 90s, you know, our generation, um, who uh, lived in perhaps urban areas, who maybe grew up in single-parent households, who grew up feeling like they didn't have the resources that they needed in order to, you know, kind of live at the highest level. Um, and yet, despite that, he pulls himself up by his bootstraps. He's an MIT grad. I think he went to the Annapolis Naval Academy. Um, but he's also taken on a lot of the tools of the colonizer to try to get back at colonizers, which is kind of what makes Killmonger villainous, right? We understand his angst and his frustration and his anger. He has a reason to be angry. Um, but kind of the turning point is his choosing, as Audrey Lord said, um, he's trying to use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. 
And I think in a lot of black liberation and a lot of black feminist politics, like we understand that that's not the way to dismantle the master's house. What were your impressions of this character, Portia? I empathize with Eric. Um, Part of me is kind of like, oh, you know, um, I'm not male, so I don't quite get it. But no, like, Eric is so many men that I know. Um, So to see him, you know, someone who's kind of coming from this urban neighborhood who's kind of growing up and actually really makes (laughs) makes a life for himself, right? Um, And he has so much rage and so much anger inside of him. But at the end of the day, I think he's also thinking about not just himself, but all of black people around the world, right? So I don't think he's just solely thinking about, I want to take over Wakanda, even though he does, he he does. That's why he wants to be the king, because he comes back to get what's his, and he's very explicit about that. But behind that, his motive is also to let me send these resources, let me become king so that I can take over and send these resources to people who are in need. And I think that that is what really becomes his detriment. You know, he's not going about it in the best way. I think his motives are are special, but I don't think he's doing it this right. Um, and so Eric, Eric, Eric is complex and, and 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 noticeably complex. He's got so many layers. He's got. I mean, he shot his girlfriend. Like, yo, bruh, that that is anger. That is issues on a whole nother level. Like that's stone cold. When you can just you know flat out just kill your lover and be like, yeah, I don't have no weaknesses. And so I find that to be very interesting. Um, yeah, Eric Killmonger, you know, he's a man, but he's got some, he's a man with issues, and he's got to work through that stuff, you know. Right, for sure, for sure. Um, and it's March Pearls, it's Women's History Month, but we're the pearls, so we'll make it Black Women's History Month, which is a perfect way to start with Black Panther, because there are some powerful Black women represented in Black Panther. So let's start off with Nakia. So we see Nakia kind of early in the film um, because she has left Wakanda and she's really just trying to go out and, like, change the world. She's trying to save the world. And Wakanda kind of has an isolationist policy where they have all of these resources, but they're kind of keeping them housed inside of Wakanda, as I saw Portia uh, write on Facebook. Wakanda is lit. Wakanda is dope. But Wakanda sure ain't woke. Uh, they have not figured out how to use their resources to, like, make a positive impact in the world. And so Nakia's critique of that is just that she's just going to opt out of it. She's Wakandan. She loves her country, um, but she doesn't love this particular policy that they have. She's also T'Challa's ex, and she would make a great queen. But she's like, well, who said I'm trying to be the queen? (laughs) So she's kind of like a dope character. What were your impressions of her, Portia? So Nakia, I think, is almost like, I don't want to say like the answer to Killmonger's motives, but I think like Nakia is, you know, someone who's homegrown, born, raised in Wakanda. And it's just like, when you get to the space where I can't, I can no longer be a part of this space because this space is not developing where I need it to be. And so I need to free myself from this space. I think so many of us have been there, especially, you know, us millennials who don't want to be in the same place where our parents have grown up, our parents have raised us. Not to say that we don't honor home, but it's kind of like life is moving forward and we need to, you know, go into a different space. 
um, for instance, like how when you turned 18, went to college, like you're like, all right, bye, Virginia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like there's more to life. Or me saying, you know, recently, like peace out, Connecticut, bye. Mm-hmm. Like I've got to go explore life and give my service and give what I can give to this world because there's so much more out there. And I think Nakia is fearless. I think she is honest. I think she is humble. I think she is pure. But I think she also, you know, she she is one, like, so many women. So this is, like, the thing, right? I see a lot of women either getting married um, or young adults. Let me say young adults, not just women. I see a lot of young people, like, around our age, like, either getting married right now or either being super serious about our careers. And right. it's almost like people aren't doing a both and, but it's like an either or. And I say that people who are getting married don't have careers, but I feel like there is a certain group of people who are serious and, like, are driving really, really, really hard, like, you know, I could be married if I really wanted to, but I'm choosing to do this path. Like, she could mm-hmm. be queen if she wanted to because she knows that T'Challa is open and ready to receive her, but she's like, but this is what I really want to do. I really want to be this spy right now, and I've got a mission, and I need to I need to do that. Almost reminds me of Oprah. <laughs> Not really Oprah, but just thinking about what Oprah says when she's like, I couldn't be the woman that I want to become if I married Stedman. Like, right. I needed to go pursue these things. Not to bring Oprah up as the Oprah enthusiast, but, you know. <laughs> it just made, but in the moment, like, I thought about that. Like, in order for Nakia to become who Nakia is, she's got to pursue her passions and pursue her dreams. But I think she has a lot of um, influence on T'Challa, like, for real. And which is why at the end of the movie, you know, he decides to, you know, open up the Oakland School of Technology or something, Wakanda right. Embassy Headquarters, something. <laughs> I forgot to say, Nakia is played by the wonderful Lupita Nyong'o. Um, next character, Okoye. Yes, this is my favorite character in the film. I could relate to her literally from the first, first moment I saw her on screen. I was like, okay, that's me. Um, and that's what's kind of cool about, um, I don't know, like, I don't want to, like, state it too harshly. Like I've, like, I've seen white women on film and I can't relate to them. It's not like that. But just there's a certain way that as black women that we carry ourselves. And so when I saw the way she was acting, it was just so much easier for me to relate. And I was like, okay, yeah, she's representing me. So Koya is played by Denai Guria. Is that how you say her last name? I don't know. I'm sorry, Denai. It's, it's goodita, but it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, Okoye um, is uh, the head – she's the general – and it is her job to head up all of the warrior women and to um, ensure that, like, basically that the king is protected, that the throne is protected, and that Wakanda is protected. And she's lit. I love this scene where she walks into the South Korean casino, and she's, like, not trying to have it with the wig. And as soon as she starts that fight sequence, she just snatches the wig off. That was amazing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, she's a leader. I think the issue that she ends up having is when Killmonger comes and um, he wins the battle and he becomes the king or the Black Panther instead of T'Challa, she really doesn't know how to reconcile with that. And we, and we see her wrestle with it and we see her finally, you know, kind of take a stand. Um, but at first she's almost passive um, because she understands that it is her job to be loyal to the throne and she's not loyal to um, people. She's loyal to the throne. And so that's something that she really wrestles with, and we can talk about that a little bit more later. But, yes, this character, she is everything. Um, Portia, what were your thoughts? 
Because, girl, you know I wrestle with that, being loyal to the throne. I be like, hmm, okay, because I be thinking about all things in the church when we be loyal to the, the when people say, oh, I'm loyal to the office of the senior pastor. Right. I'd be like, what does that mean? But anyway, um, let me say this. Ms. Danai Gurira, look, she is just all things awesome. She actually wrote the um, the Tony-nominated play uh, Eclipse that Lupita Nyong'o was in, and so uh, her and Lupita are like awesome friends. So shout out to their black girl magic on and off camera. So I just want to put that out there. But Okoye you know, she is super duper dope. You know, how could you not want to be down with the Dora Milaje? Like, she is a general, okay, y'all? She's the general, not just in general, but the general, okay? And so I admire her strength. I admire her ability to keep people in line, to keep people in check, to remind people of who they are. Um, and I think underneath all of those layers, I think she has a heart and she's soft. I do think that she has the capacity to love and to be loved. And I think that's a good reminder for so many of us who stand in positions of, of strength, um, who come across as being very strong. That doesn't mean that we don't have the capacity to be soft and to be loving. We just prioritize it in different ways um, because it's very, very obvious that she has a relationship with Wakabi. Okay, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on the next character. Um, Everett K. Ross is played by Martin Freeman, and he's one of, like, two white male characters in the film. We'll get to the other one uh, in a few minutes. Um, but, yeah, he's a CIA agent. We're going to get to a scene that he's in later because uh, I do have a few issues with him. However, what I do want to say is that I think he represents, um, like, a way that white people can be co-conspirators with black people instead of thinking like, oh, I'm going to be your ally. Like, I'm sorry, I don't need allies. I need people who are going to work with me to create positive change in the world. And if you're not that person, like, please, just go do something else. And so it takes him a minute. The character has to evolve, um, but he takes a bullet for um, Nakia, which is why she ends up taking him back to Wakanda to save his life. And he does make some positive impacts in the film. And um, I'm going to pause there on my description of him. Did you have any uh, feelings, thoughts, concerns about this character, Portia? The colonizer. Um. <laughs> the colonizer. <laughs> the white boy who uh, Shuri needed to fix. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, he, he shows up in every uh, Marvel uh, black not Black Panther, but Marvel franchise movie because, you know, he's a CIA agent, so he's in all of – He's, he's everywhere, so I don't feel the need to explain his character. He's, he just is. Next. Right. Okay. Dope. Okay. Um, next we have Akabi, played by the incredible Daniel Kaluuya. I have some feelings about the way that Daniel's character was written. I didn't love it. Um, but basically, uh, Wakabi is, uh, he basically, he has this relationship with Okoye. We see that. He also seems to have a close friendship with T'Challa. And he, uh, yeah, I mean, one of his big beefs is that his father was killed when, we'll later find out, Killmonger's father betrayed Wakanda. And so he really, like, He's not happy about that. He's pretty angry about that. And he wants T'Challa, now that T'Challa is king, to do something about that. And um, it kind of just kind of warps his brain because that's all that he can really focus on, getting revenge for this thing that happened all these years ago. And, you know, I think we all can get that, kind of the same as a Killmonger character. Like, we understand, like, your daddy was killed, like, you're angry about this. But it completely warps his perspective. Um, Portia, what were your impressions of 
Daniel's character, Wakabi? You know, Wakabi, you know, I'm still processing Wakabi because I understand why Wakabi's mad and why Wakabi decides to partner with, you know, Killmonger. Like, I understand that. Not, and I do also think that we should name um, Wakabi's disappointment when T'Challa doesn't honor his word. And I think that's why Wakabi partnered with Killmonger, because he wanted change. And he wanted his parents to be, um, what do you call it, to be revenged? Vengeance? Yeah, like their deaths to be avenged. Avenged. There we go. Duh, the Avengers. Hello. He wants (laughs) to be avenged. (laughs) So, and I think Wakabi's choices were out of disappointment because at the end of the day, T'Challa didn't keep his word. He tried, but the point was around here in Wakanda, we don't try. We just do. And if you give your word, your word is your bond. You made Mm -hmm. a promise to me man to man. And that hurt. And so for Wakabi, someone who he's known all his life, someone who he's been friends with, T'Challa, he was disappointed that his friend let him down. And he knew how much it meant to him. So for it to just slip, it was like, how can you come back here without Claw? Like, I would have rather you been gone for three months than you show up and you don't even have him. So I, I get that point. And so that disappointment was real. And so, you know. Yeah, I have trouble with that character. And like I said, I think... I think part of the issue that I also have is that we all know uh, Daniel Kalia is just an incredible actor and can just do all things um, as an actor. And so I also just felt like the way the character was written was super simplistic. I do think we can read all that you just said into the way that it was portrayed on screen, but all of that wasn't written. There was just this random flip where, like, oh, now I like Killmonger. And I was like, really? Really, dude? Really? Loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was really wrestling with that character, and in part, I, like I said, I think that was a downfall in terms of writing because, like, we didn't get to see that full arc. We just saw anger, and then, oh, okay, Killmonger is here with the guy who I wanted dead. Okay, cool. We're good. I'm um, moving on right along to one of my other favorite characters, our girl Shuri. So we can talk all day about Shuri. I'm going to keep it nice and short and simple. Like, Shuri is the brains of Wakanda. There is no Wakanda without Shuri. Yes, we need our warrior women. Yeah, we need the Black Panther. But there is no Black Panther without Shuri's brains. There is no Wakanda without Shuri's brains. And um, every Black parent, whatever, who wants to see their girls and boys potentially go into STEM careers, you need to take them to see Black Panther 10 million times because Shuri is everything. Portia, what were your thoughts? Shuri is still the show, yeah. So Letitia Wright, girl, yes. She's got a bright future ahead in this thing called Hollywood because Shuri stole the show. She was funny. She gave us the comedic relief that we all needed. She's like the perfect little sister. So not only is she smart, she's witty, she's talented, but she's hilarious. Um, And she also um, desires to see her country thrive and to do well, which is why she puts her all into her work. That's why she puts her all 
into what she does. And they say that in the Marvel world that Shuri is more brilliant than Tony Stark. Like, hello. Um, and then on top of that, like, she's super loaded because she's a princess. Like, she's legit the right. princess. So it's like Shuri is probably the richest Disney princess ever. Like, she's a real Disney princess, y'all. So I love Shuri. Yeah. So Shuri, 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 Shuri. Surely Shuri <laughs> is the princess. And she is amazing. And all the more reason why, because like you said, because girls in STEM, men in STEM, people in, in STEM, women in STEM, um, Shuri represents that community. And all the more reason for us to go support um, A Wrinkle in Time, which is also coming out. So uh, because Storm Reed, who plays um, the character, I cannot remember her name. Um, right. But yes. In A Wrinkle in Time, Storm Reed's character also understands science because her father was a scientist. And so Mm -hmm. we need to show every image and representation of black girls and black womanhood interested in science. So, Mm -hmm. um, yes, so I'm inspired by Sherry. Yeah, we need more black people uh, in STEM, period. Like, this isn't just a gender issue. Like, black people are underrepresented in STEM in general. Um, but, yeah, I think we definitely have a double burden as black women where there's an assumption that because we're black and because we're girls or women, we cannot do math. And we have to break out of that because we are logical, we're smart, we're creative, and Shuri, that character is a great represent- re- representation of that. Okay, Mbaku. Okay, Winston Duke, Yale alum, as is Lupita Nyong'o, and as is Angela Bassett, who we'll get to in a minute. Um, so Mbaku is part of, like, he's part of Wakanda, but he and his people decided to go to the mountains. Like, they're not trying to hang out with everybody else in Wakanda. And he becomes actually pretty important in the movie, but he is the only one who has um, royal lineage who decides to also buy for the throne um, when, uh, when T'Challa becomes king. And so T'Challa ends up winning um, and you know, obviously Mbaku is allowed to continue to live and just go back home and, and chill with his people in the mountains, which is good because we need him later in the movie. Uh, so, yeah, so I thought that was a pretty good character, and I think Winston Duke did a great job of playing that character. Uh, Portia, thoughts? Yeah, Mbaku, I just appreciated the fact that he even tried to, you know, go after the throne. Like, he gave it a shot, you know what I mean? And... Some people are like, oh, why would he do that? It's a jerky move. But it's like, but if you're entitled to challenge, why not challenge? And I think sometimes we don't challenge because we, this is an assumption of this is the way it should be. This is what it's always been. This is the last king's son, so he should be entitled to it. And it's like, wait, like, why not? challenge and, you know, give another bloodline an opportunity. So I'm not even mad at the fact that Mbaku tried. He didn't succeed, but he tried. You know what I mean? He gave it an effort. Um, and I don't necessarily like the fact that challenges end in death or could end in death or by death or um, by uh, giving up, like, you know, you tap out. But, you know, it's, it is what it is. But um, I do give Mbaku um, credit for that. And uh, plus he was just fine, okay? It was just nice to see. <laughs> you know, everybody's black. But, you know, it was just nice. You, Winston Duke, you know, amen. 
we just we <laughs> give God thanks. We we you know I I have I have a crush on Michael B. Jordan, you know, but Michael came on the screen. I was like, wait a minute. I know I'm not the only one who had that moment. Okay, <laughs> don't play me, y'all. Y'all know y'all thought that too. Stop it. <laughs> Uh, Sterling K. Brown plays Njobu, um, who is actually pretty crucial to the movie. He's not in a ton of scenes, but we know Sterling K. Brown can act his behind off, and he did that. Um, so Njobu is T'Chaka, who is T'Challa's father. Njobu is T'Chaka's brother, right? And uh, he has gone to Oakland, California, and he has married an American woman there. And, like, he's, like, a revolutionary. However, he has also sold out Wakanda. And um, this other character whose name is Zuri is there and basically has been sent as a spy and basically, uh, like, gives Njobu up. And so T'Chaka comes to confront him. And then um, he tries to pull a gun on Zuri, and T'Chaka kills his own brother. And it is a hot mess. And uh, we find out later that Jobu also has a son who is left behind in Oakland, um, presumably in a single-parent household. We do not get to see um, Killmonger's mother at any point in the film, which is kind of uncomfortable. Um, but anyway, he's left behind, and um, so that fuels problems later in the film. Um, what were your thoughts about this character? You know, I okay. So Najobu, we who we don't get to spend a lot of time with, but I appreciate that Ninjobu, And this is like kind of like the unwritten thing, right? It's like kind of like reading between the lines. I appreciate the fact that he instilled the history and the oral tradition of Wakanda to young Eric as a child. Yeah. I appreciated that and the passing on of the stories. And because as African-Americans of African descent, we are, a lot of our history is oral. There's not a lot of stuff written in in the textbooks about us. A lot of what we know about our ancestry a lot of times have been passed orally. So I appreciated the fact that he told him the story, like from the beginning, the opening thing, like, Papa, tell me, uh, Baba, tell me a story. And he's telling him the story, you know, right. of, of a people and a people that is his. And that, that to me, is probably the most significant thing that I can possibly say about Unjobu. Not the fact that he's a traitor, <laughs> not the fact that he, um, you know, not, not for his mistakes, but what he did well. Um, and mm-hmm. so I remember Unjobu for something that he did well. And he gave his son something to believe in, you know, oh, yeah, he instilled sure. something in him. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think he, um, like, definitely in terms of, like, black fatherhood, like, he is a great representation, I think, of what so many black fathers are and don't get credit for. You know, we talked about this now over a year ago on our black fatherhood episode. Um, like, I think in a lot of ways I actually agree that black men don't get enough credit um, for the parenting that they do. And he gives a great example, I think, as a father and as a man um, of how to teach the next generation and so, yeah, I think that's something really positive we can say about it. And we also have to give Eric credit for listening. I mean, he, he took it too far, but we have to give him credit for listening because not all of us listen to the older generation either. Um, so that was lit. Okay, Angela Bassett. Angela Bassett is, like, forever gorgeous and flawless and all the things. She also is a Yale alum, as I mentioned earlier. And she plays Queen Ramonda. She is T'Challa's uh, mother, which makes her the queen mother. 
And uh, we don't actually get to see a ton of her, unfortunately. I actually wanted to see a lot more with her. So there's not really too much that I can say about the character, except that she's the queen. She carries herself as such. Um, she's really holding it together. And after we see T'Challa um, lose in his battle against Killmonger, um, she does whatever she can do in order to protect the throne from Killmonger because she really truly believes Killmonger is a problem. Um, she wears a crown throughout most of the film, and Portia and I were talking about before we started um, recording this episode, those gray locks are her crown. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> Portia, what you got? Those locks were everything. Um, if anybody knows anything about me, I love locks. Oh, my goodness. And those were – I just want to be, you know, mature. You know, I want to mature in life, and I don't want to color my hair anymore because I want hair that matures with me and just to be beautiful. And there is um, a deacon actually at my church who has beautiful gray locks like that. Um, she actually cut them recently, so they're shorter. They're not as long anymore, but those, oh, my God beautiful crown and glory but anyway um <laughs> Ramonda as a character um with all of her glory I like Ramonda because I think she represents so many women who go to great extents so I think about the weeping mothers and women who go to whatever extent that they can go to to seek justice for their sons who so I think about mothers who have lost their sons to violence and who literally will go to other communities to seek refuge and to seek help and to seek support, to say, can you help us in our, where we are, and literally will stop at nothing to save um, the legacy and the life that her family has built. And so I appreciate that when she finds out that T'Challa is alive, that she's going to do whatever she can do to revive him, okay? So she literally, and, and of course we got to give it up to Nakia who takes that heart shape in the first place because she knew that, you know, this was going to be a resource. But she took that thing and she started mashing that thing up and then she started making her, you know, motion potion. And she's like, I'm going to save my son and we're, gonna, and we're going to bring him back because, and literally we'll stop at nothing. Like, like his death was like she could not accept the fact that he was dead like in the extent that she would go to to make sure that her country her nation would not die and so I appreciate all the black women who all of us stand on the front lines for justice to say we're not going to accept what we see and we're going to do whatever we can do to change our nation and to seek justice. And I think that's, that's Ramonda, you know, underneath it all. It wasn't explicitly said like that, but that's just the Porsche tape. Amen. Yeah. And shouts out to M'Baku for finding T'Challa and for keeping him alive. I mean, that's also an example of black brotherhood because uh, uh, M'Baku could have taken the opportunity and he did not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think M'Baku really uh, is a more important character also than he's given credit for because, like, he kept coming through um, and making positive impact. Okay, Forrest Whitaker plays Zuri. Zuri was, um, as a young man, the spy who was sent to Oakland. Um, but as an older man, he's just kind of, like, wise and sage, and, like, we don't really know too much of what Zuri is all about. Uh, until he reveals this entire story, and T'Challa is like, what? Like, dude, like, 
sir. You should have told me this story from the beginning so that I would know that other people from outside of Wakanda might be trying to show up and vie for this throne um, and causing problems out in the world. Um, so Zuri is like, you know, I mean, he's played by Forrest Whitaker. He feels real trustworthy. And then there's this whole, like, turn where it's like, okay, dude, but, like, low-key, you're betraying Wakanda right now because you need to give the current king all the information that you have. I think that's kind of a recurring issue in the film um, where there's this issue of being so loyal that you're not actually doing what you need to do to protect your country. And I think, you know, we can talk about that more just in terms of the implications of that in terms of contemporary black life where we are, like, so loyal. You know, we do this in family sometimes. We keep these family secrets to the detriment of the family. And that's kind of what Zuri represents to me. Like, you know, he's that old, wise uncle who you trust. But then all of a sudden you're like, say what? Like, why didn't you tell me this information that I crucially needed in order for my life to be better? Uh, So I was kind of frustrated with Zuri, clearly. But Portia, what were your opinions? You know, I want to be frustrated with Zuri. I really do. But if I'm going to be frustrated with Zuri, then I have to also be frustrated with so many other of the elders among us, right? Because I think about the line where he says, um, oh, gosh, I'm jacking it up. I know I am. But about the lie that they chose to admit, like to omit, um, and what they chose to never speak about um, between his between T'Chaka and, and um, Zuri. And I think about how... Zuri was like, I was asked never to speak those things, and how he's someone who believes in keeping his word, and he's kept his word on so many things, even if it was ugly. And so, um, so Zuri kind of reminds me of Okoye in terms of like their loyalty. Like by any means necessary, I'm going to be loyal to the throne, even if it means. Um, protecting the ugly parts, protecting mm-hmm. those things that should not be spoken. And so even though I'm like very, it's like that lie is irritating, I cannot say that, well, maybe mm, that's something else. Like can one lie literally ruin someone's entire legacy? Can one act literally ruin a legacy? Because literally everything that Zuri, that we thought we knew about Zuri as the elder in the community, as someone who we could turn to and look to, literally was tarnished in that one moment. Like, wow, like you kept that. But then it's almost like, but can we forgive? Can they be, can the elders be redeemed? Um, And can the ancestors like even be redeemed? Like for some of the things that they may not have done right. Um, and mm-hmm. it's kind of like the narrative that we choose to tell. And so Zuri, I can't really, you know, be completely angry with Zuri. Um, but at the same time, I think Zuri was doing the best he could with what he had. And I think he was doing the best that he knew how to do where he was. And so, you know, when Zuri took the fall, I was like, dang. And um, he even took the fall knowing that he only told um T'Challa, the truth. He didn't tell anybody else. Um, he mm-hmm. told the king um, because he was the king at the time, and he was loyal to the throne. And so, yeah, there, there's all of that. So many layers. So much. Oh, very. Um, <laughs> and then last character that we will talk about, I don't want to talk about this character, so I'm just going to just say the name. Um, you'll see uh, Qua, played by Andy Serkis. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's just kind of a random white bad guy. Uh, Portia, you got any more to say about that? <laughs> um, 
No, I don't really want to give energy to to him because he, to me, was the real villain. He stole, he was the white guy, basically, y'all, he is the white guy who stole from the black people. Like, let's just call it what it is. Like, he stole. He stole. He stole. And so we can even give somebody else some more energy, like, to, whatever. So um, other minor characters, Tataka, Ayo. Ayo is one of the Dora Milaje. Tataka was the king. And, yes, we have named them. We give that thanks. What was one of your favorite scenes in, uh, in Black Panther? Everything. <laughs> um, okay. So seriously, even though I'm like everything. Um, yeah. So besides everything, um, everything that reminded – all the scenes that reminded me of The Lion King. Um, one very specific scene um, – actually, it's in two parts, but it's when – Actually, it's in three parts when I think about it. Every time they went to the ancestral place, so every time um, T'Chaka was buried, which was not T'Chaka, T'Challa was buried, which was twice, and he actually talked to T'Chaka in the space. Um, And when uh, Eric was buried and went to speak to Njobu. So I love the ancestral space because it just reminds me that we are still connected um, to our ancestors, even when we don't see them, even when we don't feel them, they're still with us. They're, we're still connected, and that to me reminds me a lot of my home church, Mount Airy. Um, and so I call the whole movie a Maafa moment. But specifically, when he went and they had the ritual of him going to meet with the Black Panthers and being surrounded by the Black Panthers, and you know, and seeing the stars, and I'm like, oh yes, like I was super excited. And so, like even when I heard the soundtrack. Um, which is super litty. Um, when I heard the song All the Stars, I was like, oh, and not even ever seeing the movie, but just kind of listening to the words, I was like, oh, there's some serious ancestral stuff that's about to happen. And so I was super excited for those moments um, that were going to happen. And so I appreciated just seeing how we are always connected. So it was like this moment of past, present, and future um, just always being with us. So the ancestors are always with us. Our elders are always with us. We are here, but then there's also a future generation that is to come um, and one that's not even born yet. And so that's why we have to be mindful of what legacy looks like because what we do now, um, our legacy is going to matter for those who aren't even here yet. So I was just really, 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 really intrigued by all the ancestral um, moments where T'Chaka and T'Challa are having conversations where Nujobu and Eric are having conversations and just um, seeking guidance and wisdom and just um, and having that be a ritual of the Black Panther. Not that you just, you know, you just become the Black Panther, but that you also have this ritual experience, that the king has to have this experience. Um, it's like a rite of passage, so to speak. It's like not only do the people have to affirm you, but the ancestors also have to affirm you. So to me, like all of that was just um, so powerful on so many levels, and I just, you know, got goosebumps every time. So, And cinematically, it was just beautiful. So I love that. You know, we have some other scenes that we want to talk about. Well, okay, I'll, I will talk about one scene, and then after that I think maybe we can just kind of go thematically instead of scene by scene. Um. This scene, I said I wasn't going to talk about Claw anymore, but this scene between Claw and Ross um, <laughs> where they are, you know, discussing Wakanda and Ross doesn't, like, fully understand what Wakanda is. He just thinks it's just a random third world country 
and that their king, for some reason, runs around in a Black Panther, Black Panther costume. Like, that's literally what he thinks Wakanda is. And Claw has been to Wakanda. Granted, he went there to steal, which is a problem, but he knows Wakanda, and he knows that they are not what they seem. And so I kind of am labeling uh, this scene white people just don't understand. Uh, <laughs> because, like, Ross, I think in that moment, his character hasn't had an evolution yet, so he feels like he's an ally, like a white ally of these, like, backwards Negroes. It's kind of like the way that I was receiving him <laughs> in those original scenes. Uh, like, listen, I'm going to help you all out. Y'all are out here looking crazy with your spears and Black Panther costumes, so let me help you all out real quick. Um, and uh, Okoye especially is not trying to have it with him, right? Like, she, like he's like, does she speak in English? And she was like, when she wants to. Like, she was, like, not trying to have it with him. Um, and she was very, like, suspicious. And, like, that was actually a moment where I was really, like, cheering for um, Okoye because um, in that scene, like, yes, she's always loyal to the throne, but she was always, like, critical of T'Challa himself. And I think that kind of nuances the idea of being loyal, you know, when people, like you said, when people say, I'm loyal to the uh, office of the senior pastor. Okay, right, but can you still be critical, right? There's a difference between being um, loyal and disloyal versus being critical and uncritical, right? You can be loyal and critical. And she really demonstrates that really well because she was, like, jabbing at him literally from the first scene in which we see them together in the movie. But nevertheless, I was really interested in this scene. And I think it's a scene that, like, all white people who say that they're committed to the cause of, like, um, uh, the liberation of the downtrodden, whoever their downtrodden are, who they've chosen, (laughs) Um, you need to see those scenes, uh, that particular scene in that movie. Um, Because I think it really shows that, like, black people are not hopeless and helpless. Like, we're fine. And what we need is for people to be co-conspirators and collaborators in the work that we're doing, not to come in and be our white saviors, right? And so I just thought that scene was really, really compelling. White people, you know, they don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) But I do appreciate you, like, really, really bringing that up because I just think, you know, all that is important. So, Jamie, black American displacement. We've got to Mm. talk about that. We have been so, 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 so displaced. And we can see a lot of that with Killmonger's uh, character, um, just how um, disconnected. So not even just displacement. That's one part of, that's one portion of the larger conversation of disconnectedness between the worlds and between the continent and between the new worlds, i.e., the Americas, um, the colonized world, right, um, the stolen world, <laughs> all of that. So we've been displaced, and sometimes as African Americans, sometimes when we travel back to the continent, we don't always feel connected. Um, and a part of that is due to the transatlantic slave movement. And even though it wasn't explicitly named in the film, it kind of alluded to it in the very, very beginning of the opening when um, um, Najobu is telling the story to Eric about Wakanda and saying, like, you know, there, were pe- there was a people who kind of sold off and they went to another land um, in the beginning. I don't remember if you remember that. And, like, I call it um, the, the, gra- uh, the, the graphite scenes in the very beginning. 
um, mm-hmm. where it was animated. And so there's mm-hmm. this disconnection between the Americas and Africa. And so we don't necessarily can't claim Africa as home. We feel very home-like to it. Like, we know this is where our people came from. We know we didn't just show up here in the Americas. We know that we were captured and taken here. And for many generations, we've been here, Um, particularly for those of us who, you know, literally can trace our family back to um, plantations. You know, we still have this disconnect. And as much as sometimes we reclaim the Africanisms, and I do believe that there are some Africanisms that are just kind of embedded in us, like, like, like little things that we don't even realize are just kind of in us, like this need to always draw together when we see each other because we're communal. Like we're naturally communal people. And I think that's why white right. people kind of look at us crazy, like why are all the black kids always sitting together? Because we naturally gravitate for one another. And I don't even think that we gravitate for one another out of our oppression. I think we gravitate for one another because we it's just embedded in us. I just think that community is, is in our DNA. And I think society has taught us to not be communal. But anyway, I digress. So um, what are your thoughts about this black American displacement and then this Wakanda's disconnect to what's happening in the larger world? So, okay, first of all, I want to go to that critique. Why are all the black kids sitting at the table together? Like, This is a real book, um, by the way. Right, I know, that's a real book. Um, because <laughs> it's a robust critique um, of black children, which make me furious. I'm like, black children don't need any more critiques. We do not need critiques for where we eat lunch. Like, we get enough critiques. We do not need a critique for where we eat lunch. But here's my response to that critique. All the white kids sit together at lunch. All the Asian kids sit together at lunch. And we sit together because we look at each other and we're like, oh, okay, we vibe. You sit with other geeks at lunch. Like, right? Like, I'm going to go chill with the, like, the black geeks. Like, I mean, like, are you tripping? Like, what do you mean why all the black kids sitting together? When did you ever come over here and try to sit here? Like, Okay, I'm sorry. That just infuriates me because I'm like, look at anybody's wedding party. Most of the time the people in their wedding party look exactly like them, down to hair color, down to waist size. Like, I mean, come on. We hang out with people who we naturally relate to. Like, that's how it works. I don't want to spend my time, if I'm in a sleepover with you, explaining to you the way my hair works. That's not how I'm going to spend my time. Like, I'm just not going to spend my free time like that. I'm not going to do it. I want to talk about the African diaspora in response to your question. Um, Because, yes, in particular, this movie does name black American displacement, right? That's what we see through the Killmonger character. He's from Oakland, right? Like, very much American. And like I said, I'm still troubled that we don't get to see the mother, um, but I'm assuming she's a black American woman. So, but the fact of the matter is that, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, like, black People from the continent of Africa have been displaced all over the world, right? That's what we call diaspora. We didn't just come to America. We went to the Caribbean. We went to Latin America. That's where you get Afro-Latino people from. We went to South America. We went to Canada. Um, We went to all parts of Europe and Asia. Black people are everywhere, okay? I don't know if we're in Antarctica yet, uh, yet or not. I haven't checked. But we are everywhere, And there's this woman, Tina Camp, who's a scholar, and she's done work on um, black people who are part of the African diaspora, and they live in Germany. And so she's, like, really trying to ask them questions about their blackness and about whether or not they feel black, right? And I think this is, like, a big question that we have. What does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be part of the African diaspora? 
what does it mean, like you said, to try to go to Africa for visits, right? I've been to um, Sierra Leone, um, and I've also been to Morocco. Moroccans don't consider themselves to be in Africa. They consider themselves to be in the Middle East, which is mainly a colorism and racism issue. Um, but in a place like Sierra Leone, when I go to Sierra Leone, everyone in Sierra Leone is very, very clear that I am not from Sierra Leone. They know that just by looking at me, by hearing the, the timbre of my voice, they naturally know that. And so I really felt for Killmonger um, when he tried to uh, return. Portia reminded me it's not a return. It's, a, it's an entrance or an arrival um, <laughs> to Wakanda. And I'm calling it a return because the reason why I'm calling it a return is because, like, literally he has, like, it's on, the, you know, it's on their inner lips. They're marked if they're, if they're Wakandan. Like, he is Wakandan. He just hasn't physically been um, but kind of, Portia, as you were pointing to, even when we haven't physically been to the continent, a lot of us naturally in our bodies and even on our skin, obviously, we carry the continent with us, even though we haven't physically been there. Um, nevertheless, he goes to Wakanda, and it, like, breaks my heart because, yes, he's, he's, he's an aggressor. He comes as the colonizers come, right? Like, he is, like, trying to shut stuff down. Um, he's coming with his guns and his weapons, and, like, he's ready to fight, right? So he comes as a colonizer, which is part of the way we know he's not Wakandan, because Wakandans are, like, pretty chill with each other, except for when they challenge for the throne. But other than that, they're pretty chill with each other, so we know he's not Wakandan, just based on the way he shows up. But then secondarily to that, um, he is indeed, in terms of blood, part of the Wakandan family, right? And Angela Bass's character doesn't know that yet. Uh, but when she says, um, you know, he doesn't belong here, he's not from here, it, like, breaks my heart a little bit because it's like, okay, like, the truth of the matter is we don't belong in Oakland. We don't belong in Newark. We don't belong in Bridgeport. We don't belong in Alexandria, Virginia. And then we can't, quote, unquote, go home, you know. Um, so where is it that black people in the diaspora, right, who have left the continent either by um, immigration or most of the time through um, intentional violent displacement through colonization, like, where do we belong, right? And it's, you know, both hilarious and kind of ironic and sad when he says to Angela Bassett, hey, auntie. Um, <laughs> but it's like a lot of us can't go to the continent of Africa and say, hi, hey, auntie, to some woman, right? And so it's like one of those things where it's like both funny and it's also sad because it's like, that's true. Like, I don't have technically people there. Like, I have people there, but they're not my people, right? And so it was, it was really, like, Killmonger's whole arrival just gave me so much to wrestle with, just in terms of the way that we understand, um, you know, I do a lot of African-American studies, so just in terms of the way that we understand diaspora and international blackness, transnational blackness. Uh, when you brought up that scene, um, the hey auntie, like something, like, it got back to me, like, you know, that, oh, who is he? You don't belong here. Like, all of that is just kind of like, dang. And his whole life, like, not to get specifically on Eric, but, like, his whole life, because he represents so many of us, he was searching for a place of belonging. And the thing that connected him to the space no longer existed. And I think that that's so many of us sometimes. We're just especially those of us who are in the U.S., like we're looking for a part, anything, to feel connected to this space because we don't know who, you know, who we are in terms of 
placing, looking on the map and being able to place who, where we are from, you know, mm-hmm. and being able to say, I'm from this tribe. I'm from these people. I can't say I'm from, you know, the Yoruba people. I can't say I'm from the Igbos. I can't say that I'm from the Ashanti tribe. I can't say, you know, all of these things. And it's like, it's just like, man, like mm-hmm. we hear about it. We know that there are thousands of languages spoken on the continent, but we don't, we cannot literally look. Like all this time we might be thinking, okay, well, I'm from Sierra Leone or I might be from Ghana or I might be from, um, you know, any one of the West African countries, um, you know, Ivory Coast or Nigeria, but you never know. You could be from Kenya. You could actually be one of the people who were um, imported from South Africa, and you probably made a hat, maybe took a stop in Brazil. And we don't even think about in the Americas, we're not the largest uh, displaced Africans <laughs> of African descent. Actually, the largest population of displaced Africans are in Brazil, okay? Like the majority of people who um, were impacted or the majority of the imports, enslaved people who were imported from Africa went to the Caribbean and went to Brazil. And so there are more people who look like us in Brazil who speak Portuguese than there are in continental U.S. in the Americas. Isn't that crazy? Like, I don't even, like, I can't even imagine, like, how many, like, there are more people in Brazil who look like us. And that's where the largest population of um, African descendants are outside of the continent of Africa. And I think sometimes, um, not to talk about us in the U.S., but I'm just going to call it what it is, I feel like sometimes as African Americans in the U.S., we feel some sense of entitlement, like we're the only ones who lost something. And so when we interact with our brothers and sisters from, the, from Jamaica or Haiti or Cuba and, and from the other places um, in the Caribbean or even from Brazil and all in South America, I feel like we kind of have this sense of entitlement, like, yeah, we were the ones who were broke down, trotted in Poland. We've been enslaved and we're entitled to find out our history like they weren't, you know, on the sugar plantations, like they weren't um, also on those ships, you know what I mean? And so I feel like sometimes you at the, being in the U.S. and our, our, our displacement has given us this unspoken sense of entitlement, like the world owes us something. And, yes, the world does owe us a huge apology um, on many things, but I do think sometimes we just walk around with this, entitlement, like there aren't other people around the world struggling with the same issues, and sometimes even worse. And so I think this detachment and this displacement isn't just for people who are on the continent, but it's for the, all of us. And we're so connected and disconnected at the same time, it's almost like crazy. So, yeah, I just to offer that point. Y'all, do it for the diaspora. <laughs> yeah, the diaspora, y'all. It's more than just black Americans out here, okay? Yeah, yeah. You know, so in that way, the story um, that, you know, Ryan Coogler is telling in this movie um, is brilliant and beautiful and gorgeous, and, like, I was feeling it. Um, but at the same time, it really is a story of privilege. And, like, I don't want to say that Michael B. Jordan's character, um, Eric, um, that he grew up in privilege. I'm not trying to say that at all. But what I'm trying to say is um, 
he had opportunity. You know, being based in the United States, he had certain opportunity. And honestly, at some level, I was feeling envious of him because, like you said, Portia, a lot of us who our families have been here for generations, we can't trace ourselves back to a particular place in time. And so at a certain level, I was envious because he knew exactly where to go to find his people, right? Um, and, like, that's pretty cool. Um, and so, and then he had the opportunity to educate himself and to uplift himself, and he used it for bad. But one of the things that I've really been wrestling with the past, like, seven or eight months as a middle-class black person is, like, how is it that I'm supposed to be approaching my blackness? How is it that I'm supposed to be approaching notions of Africanism, of um, different, like, social class issues? Um, because Michael B. Jordan's character definitely didn't begin with any level of privilege, but then he accumulated privilege and then took it to destroy black women and to try to destroy Wakanda for his own gain, which, like I think you said earlier, Ultimately, we can think that he had a great goal of trying to use the resources for good, um, but his entire approach makes it really unclear whether or not he would have actually been able to do that. So that's enough on that particular topic. Like, we just spent a lot of time on Eric Killmonger. I'm ready for some women. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are other themes that we could talk about, y'all, from, you know, uh, I want to call it, you know, Mufasa and Scar, but it's not. Um, it's T'Challa and Nijobu, you know, they're, they're – um, their, their killing of each other, oh, not each other, but their killing, um, and just brotherhood, and then just looking at redeeming brotherhood, and then just looking at different areas of brotherhood, but we're women, um, so not to dismiss that, but I am looking forward to conversations on brothers taking on the conversation of talking about um, brotherhood and what all those relationships between the men are in in um, Wakanda and Black Panther, so if somebody out there does a podcast on it, let us know, because we want to listen, so I just gave y'all a charge. But anyway, moving on, black women. So black womanhood and in Wakanda and Black Panther and the Dora Milaje and Nakia and, you know, Okoye and Ramonda and Ayo and Sherry, just all these black women um, who just really gave us an opportunity to celebrate ourselves. I mean, if there wasn't black girl magic, I don't know what that was, but it was everything you know, melanated, just everything, just perfection, just seeing ourselves in, and particularly in a deeper shade, you know, it mm. matters, um, you know, because I do think we've privileged um, fairer-skinned black women and lighter-skinned black women and calling that beautiful, you know, and this is no disrespect to anyone who is a fair skin or lighter skin. I am a lighter-skinned black woman, you know, so I get it. But it was a beauty and a joy to see that my sisters and people who I love and family members to see themselves on camera and well lit, okay, literally well lit, because people had and Hollywood does not like black people well all the time. Mm -hmm. So I just want to put that out there. But I, it was a joy to see, you know, um, deeper tones on 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 film, like men that look like my dad, you know, or men that look like my uncles and women that look like my cousins, you know, because I think to see the beauty of black women, that we come in all shapes, we come in all sizes, you know, we are thickums, we are thin, we are healthy, we are bold, we are beautiful, and we have curves, and we are gorgeous. We have – I loved how there was no – everybody had natural hair, Everyone had natural hair with the exception of the one wig that Okoye had on that she threw. Everyone was natural. 
And it was, I don't think I've ever seen a film in my life where everybody's hair looked like mine or Mm -hmm. looked like a style that I had at some point, whether it be braids, whether it be balls, whether it be, you know, my two seconds of locks that didn't work out so well. You remember that, Jamie? Um, You know, just seeing women with, with who just look like myself, you know, or yeah. just representations. It was so wonderful to see. And then people coming out, just, you know, just being who they are. It was such a celebration of blackness, but I really think the a golden star goes to a celebration of black womanhood and our strength. We are so strong. Um, and it just appreciates, like, when you think about our moms and our grandmoms and just the women in our lives, it was just such an ode to black womanhood and not being, you know, um, objects of sexual pleasure, but being women, you know, who are warriors. Like, it just was so, it meant so much. Um, Jamie, you know, you are the black feminist um, expert um, and, you know, and you are becoming um, one of the leading voices in black feminism. You know, Jamie, um, I really, really, uh, you know, am excited for you to share just how important this representation and what this means for us as black women and what this means for us um, as we, you know, seek to become um, you know, better and, and, and stronger. And as this is our time, you know, looking at the mm-hmm. landscape of black women, um, we're entrepreneurs, we're doing work, we're, you know, on the front lines of justice and activism. And I think this is so rich. And so I'm really, really, really excited to hear what she will speak about um, in terms of just the landscape of, of black women and, and the timing of this film um, for such yeah. a time as this. For sure, yeah. I mean, we already did the Black Feminism and Womanism episode earlier um, in February, right? And thinking about how far womanism has come in the past 40 years, thinking about, you know, the 40-year anniversary, now 41 years since the Combahee River Collective was put together, um, which, you know, as we discussed in our previous episode, is really this Black Feminist manifesto. It's like we're finally starting to see some of the, the gains that we need to see as black women in terms of our representation on screen um, and in the public square. Because I think, Portia, what you were just alluding to is this film didn't do anything except for show us as we really are, right? Like we still are running around with these major stereotypes about black women, that we are angry, that we are hostile, that we are, you know, Jezebels and Mammies and, you know, all of those death-dealing stereotypes that, you know, Emily Towns talks about so effectively in her work. And, you know, yeah, we are sexual. And, yes, we are maternal. You know, we see that with Ramonda's character. And none of that means that we don't have power, that we don't have authority, that we don't get stuff done, um, that we don't um, – that we're not full people, right? And so, for me, all that Black Panther did is show me the Black women – that I know, show me the black women that you know, showed us black women who are in our families, like you said, who are in our friend groups, uh, who we interact with every day, um, who we follow on Instagram and Twitter, who give us life, um, and Lupita and Denai and um, Angela Bassett and Leticia, they just did a great job of just depicting um, black women as we are. And so, yeah, for me, it was you know, obviously beautiful. Like I said, I could totally relate, especially to Okoye. Um, but what's most compelling, I think, is when um, uh, Killmonger shows up 
and, you know, um, Denise's character, Okoye, is a little bit slower to, you know, fight back in the traditional way that we might have expected her to. But the way that Nikia and Shuri and Ramonda did what they needed to do, they were like um, the three, you know, they were like the women, um, Jesus' aunt and his mother um, and Mary Magdalene. They're like the women who are gathered at the foot of the cross with Jesus, right? Like waiting to see what's going to happen, standing by him, right? And like, that's who black women are, as you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, we are the wailing mothers. We are the women who seek justice. Um, we are the Fannie Lou Hamers and the Ella Bakers. That's, that's who we are, right? And so just to see the way these women united and then the way that they ultimately were so strong and powerful in terms of fighting back, and literally in terms of ending the civil war in their country. And I think one of the things that we forget about our history and even about our present day is that there have historically been matrifocal societies, societies where the women are leaders, right? Like um, <laughs> a song that I really love and that we've kind of alluded to a little bit on this podcast, the Beyonce song, uh, Girls Run the World, um, like where she says that she's strong enough to bear the children and get back to business. And I think, like, yeah, that's historically what black women have done of necessity, but also just because it's, it's who we are and it's not just who women are, really. Like, this isn't just a black woman thing. Like, we have children and we, like, get back to life. Like, that's what we do. Um, so, yes, I just thought it was just a powerful depiction of women in their truest, realist form. And I was so proud of the women who depicted us so boldly. And like I said, shouts out to the writers and the director for, you know, just showing us as we are. Yeah, just as we are, you know, powerful, strong, bold, confident, um, loving, and supportive, and yet women who have made up in their mind that they're going to serve their nation but also stand up for justice. Um, and I think we see different layers of that and different nuances of that within all of the women characters. And yeah. I don't think anyone is more stronger than the other or more powerful than the other. Um, right. I definitely think that they um, they all have something to bring, even, like, to the elder who's in, like, the council. Um, mm -hmm. There's one woman, um, and I don't know her character's name, but she's one who, um, in real life, she's 91 years old, yeah, <laughs> and she's that. acting. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? And just to see, one, her strength as um, a real-life woman who's, you know, still pursuing her passions and dreams on film and just reminding us, like, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can be 91. You can be 19. You can still pursue an acting career. And just watching her in the film as an elder um, it's just so powerful to me just remembering that there are, the, 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 there are some women who may not have a loud um, role or may not have a prominent role, but they're still there. And we right. also need to remember that they're there too, and their role is just as significant um, right. and just as important. Right. And so there was only one American woman in the whole film, and she was shot and killed. <laughs> and... <laughs> I don't even know how to feel about that, actually. It is just kind of like, really? Um, I just, I was just kind of disturbed. So I was like, did you have to go there? Um, 
you know, why did Killmonger even need a, a Bonnie to his Clyde? Like, you know what right. I'm saying? Right. Like, I didn't, yeah, that wasn't cool. And like I said. It wasn't I, necessary. The entire Killmonger narrative in terms of women was just jacked up. Like, dude, where is your mama? <laughs> like, cause clearly, you know, like you the lack of. By, by, by Sterling K. Brown, and based on your complexion, like, <laughs> like you're with an, you have an American mother, a black American mother who raised you in Oakland. Like, where's she at? And I think she probably is non-existent. So even though it's not written, but my assumption is, my honest assumption, and um, I have to go deeper into, like, the comics um, to understand more about him, but my assumption, y'all, assumption, is that um, given all that we know about him, is that his mother probably wasn't around. If this is in the 80s that he was growing up in Oakland, she might have died to gun violence in the community. She might have died to the war on drugs. She might have been um, a drug addict. She might have been incarcerated. Um, and my assumption is that when Najobu died is that Eric went into one of the foster care system or that he was cared for by someone else who was not biologically his family, and which speaks, and I'm assuming it could have been maybe a white family because he had access to certain privileges and he knew of certain things because, like, he was a science nerd, like, and mm-hmm. he knew the sciences and he went to MIT. It's like I don't know too many young men from Oakland, um, and not to say that there aren't young men from Oakland. Actually, I know one young man from Oakland who has a PhD who's doing quite well for himself um, as I think about it. But that doesn't mean that the traumas in the societies of growing up in late 80s Oakland doesn't still impact these, you know, people's lives. And so I wonder if him being afforded some of these opportunities, and maybe it's just because, you know, Killmonger is just super, super duper smart. And I also think he was also given opportunities to go to places like MIT because he was around, like some Bay Area family took him in. So this is the Porsche theory, that some Bay Area <laughs> family took him in and he went to private school and he eventually ended up hating white people because he's like, y'all are a mess, y'all not teaching us right, and he just kind of took it upon himself to to succeed. So it's just kind of like, well, who put him in these spaces so he could go to an MIT? Why didn't he fall into, like, the drug game like his father was in? Why didn't he fall into certain community hands that he was – he didn't fall – he didn't become a victim of his environment in terms of physically. He might have mentally, emotionally, yes, but physically he – clearly he got out some kind of way. Um, right. uh, some kind of programs. Maybe there's somebody's my brother's keeper in the community. But in any case, um, I'm rambling on. So that's just my my theory for Killmonger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know. That's but anyway, I'm done. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, my my point remains. I was just it, it was disturbing to me just to see his carelessness with black female life. Yeah, I'm here. You know, in terms of the way that he treats the elders. Um, I mean, it just it was just a, it was just a hot mess. Disrespectful, um, right? I mean, and I is. was trying to and I was trying to give him you know credit because obviously he had listened to his father, but clearly that's the last person he listened to in his life. Like I was like, sir, you're surrounded by elders, you're surrounded by you know women who are supporting you, and this is the way you're gonna act. Um, well, yeah. So it was you know 
Um, Respectability so, politics not happening. <laughs> right. And, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I totally buy your story about the mother. I just think it was so interesting that we got this really, really, really beautiful arc with Najobu, his father, um, to really give us that backstory um, as though children come from isolation, right? I, I don't like to see it the other way either in movies where it's like, oh, yeah, this, this woman just raises these children. And it's like, okay, well, there's, there is more to the story than that, right? Um, so it's just, you know, I have just a few little critiques of Black Panther. That's one of them. My critiques are few and far in between. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there was just a – certainly he was careless with women in general, um, but, yeah, it's kind of disappointing to see, like, black American women kind of just getting, like, discarded. Um, that was kind of disappointing. So, you know, do you have anything, like, petty to share with us before we uh, say goodbye to our listeners? Oh, my God. There's always so many reasons to be petty. Um, <laughs> you know, there is the, the, Wakanda, the Wakanda petty. Um, that actually just recently uh, hit the airwave. Um, and so, apparently, so... I don't know if you've seen the memes where Atlanta <laughs> is offering flights to Wakanda. Um, mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to Wakanda, going to Wakanda, going to Wakanda, going to Wakanda. And so everyone's trying to, you know, become the Wakanda citizens and whatnot. Um, and then someone's name who I do not like to speak, um, his name Yeah, we know who you're talking R. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A certain mm-hmm. singer from, you know, Chicago, and he decided he wanted to post that he was on his way to Wakanda. Absolutely not, sir. You are not welcome in Wakanda, and this is why. Because we protect black women, because we respect black women, and we love black women, and we protect our black girls. And so I think that we need to continue to call out the people who are not being good citizens of peace because Wakandans are about peace. And even though they've got their own problems, you know, maybe hidden gems that we do not know about, but overall Wakanda, Wakandan people are, are seeking to protect each other and live in love and live in light. And people like that we need to continue to call out in our community, you know, because that's not okay. And that is an injustice. And I would appreciate if we stop spinning his records, if we stop supporting his his concert, because guess what? That is the kind of stuff, not to say that people cannot be redeemed, not to say that people are beyond redemption, because I don't believe that, but I do believe that we give power sometimes to the wrong things. Just like we gave, um, we came and we supported our money to support Black Panther, which has grossed over $404 million in its opening weekend, bow, bow. But we also be putting our money and supporting the wrong things. And so think about the message that it sends when we get behind people who do not support and love our people. And so I just wanted to to share that as my petty pearl this week. No, people like that are not welcome into Wakanda, okay? Mm -hmm. They don't get a first-class ticket. They get, you know, you don't get beyond immigration um, borders Mm -hmm. to Wakanda when you act like that. Okay, mm. so that's mm. just me, you know, um, what do you call it? You know, at the airport where they screen you, um, I call it immigration, but I'm talking because I'm not that, not that, but, you know, the screening process, um, mm-hmm. the gate checks when they check people's visas and stuff. Like, no, sir, you can't come to Wakanda. Access revoked. 
foul. <laughs> yes. No for you. You cannot come. Mm. So. Mm. Hmm. Well, Portia and Pearl, until next time, Wakanda forever. Attention, petty people. Yeah, you. Aren't you petty? We're petty. And so we want you to be on our show. Jamie and I are going to host an entire show about being petty. It's going to be the best of the best of the best, the top petty moments. I'm sure you've got some petty moments, so we want to hear from you. If you want to know more about how to be on our show, email us at adventures at justtwopearls.com. We're going to be looking for 30-second petty segments. So go ahead. What are you doing? Why are you just listening to me? Go ahead. Email us adventures at just com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at just two pearls. And you can email us at adventures at just two pearls.com. And remember, cultivate the pearl within you.